0: Welcome to the Everything Building Envelope podcast. On this show, we discuss topics relating to the exterior building envelope, such as waterproofing, glazing, cladding, roofing, and more. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For previous episodes, show notes, and bonus video content, check out our website, everythingbuildingenvelope.com. Now, here's your host for the Everything Building Envelope podcast, Welcome, everyone, to our Everything Building Envelope podcast. I'm Derek Siegel, a senior consultant for GCI Consultants, and I will be your host today. I'm very excited today to have as our guest Ken Larson. Ken is a third-party evaluator and works with the International Dry Standard Organization. Welcome, Ken.
1: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Excellent to have you here. Ken, let's start off by telling listeners a little bit about yourself how you came to be in the industry you're in and you know what you're involved with at present you know to help improve the industry and educate professionals for the good of all
1: sure thank you so i've been in this business of repairing structures typically on insurance claims for 41 years now i originally come from vancouver british columbia in canada And recently, in fact, six days ago, I am proud to say that I immigrated here to the United States and I am now uh, a citizen of the U.S. I uh, had my own restoration firm in Vancouver, British Columbia for 20 years and sold it uh, in the year 2000 and ended up moving down to the States where I was taught how to be an instructor in this line of work. And so uh, I've been teaching contractors how to repair buildings after fires and floods for multiple different certifying organizations, including the IICRC, Uh, the Institute of Inspection and Cleaning and Restoration Certification, uh, as well as the Restoration Industry Association, that's another entity, and another one is the uh, American Council for Accredited Certification, that's the ACAC, and I've been approved to teach courses for each of those uh, uh, important industry groups. From there, I still teach these courses around the world, uh, including Australia, Canada, US, uh, Europe, and um, Now what I find myself doing is in addition to teaching these courses, I'm being used as a consultant in court cases, depositions, expert witness type work. And as it relates to the consumer who might have an insurance claim of their own, I'm used to help establish the scope of work necessary to do a competent standard of care project whenever there is an insurance claim. And I do it from an independent third party status. So that's my background.
0: Sounds good. Wow. So you're busy and I see just uh, doing a little research. So you're a, a third party consultant, you're a lecturer, you're an instructor, you're an inventor and you've written some, some papers as well. With that in mind, what tips can you give property owners to help them be better educated to recognize they have a problem? and find out you know what these important next steps are that they should take um, and also uh, where they're most likely to to see these problems and and how they need to be better educated on their property
1: well so that's a very broad question there can be so many different uh, scenarios worth uh, considering i think the way uh, the thing what i would like to say in response to that is that if they suspect that their insured property, your home, your business, uh, the building itself, has in some way been compromised by some event. Let's say it was a pipe burst or a sprinkler head that failed, or maybe there was an unusual rain weather event that came in and water found its way in there, or something burned in a sensitive location, You know, and you don't know if there's uh, the need for damages. But well, we could go on and on about all the possible scenarios. If you get... Some type of a situation where you need to have answers I would encourage the policyholder to call their agent and very carefully phrase their question uh, think before they make that phone call they should pose it in the form of a question so for instance uh, hello mr. insurance agent I was just curious if you could answer a question for me. Uh, I've got my insurance policy through you, and this is the insurance carrier. Can you please tell me if I'm covered for this kind of peril? And you describe what the situation is. Now, you didn't state that you have or that you are filing an insurance claim. You didn't even say that you had that scenario. You're just looking to find out if it's a covered peril. Now, that's important because it doesn't go onto your file. But with that information, you can get a straightforward answer and then you can decide whether or not you wish to proceed with your insurance claim. And I think that's an important first step.
0: Is there a particular area of the home or building they should look or be aware of? Are there areas in the home that are more likely to have experienced a leak or are more likely for them to be able to see or feel something?
1: Well, it could be all of those things. So it's not uncommon so the, the latter thing that you said can they see or feel something it's not uncommon that somebody will have a water intrusion come into their home and they they don't know about it they just they didn't discover it it might have been behind the kitchen mm-hmm. cabinets they just didn't know it happened and then all of a sudden they you know their children are starting to have, have a rash or they have a mm. watery eyes, or they're complaining of headaches, or that they're dizzy, or, mm. or whatever the symptom might be. And then they go like, wait a minute, maybe I've got a problem, and maybe it's associated mm. with uh, an event that I'm not aware of, like that water leak behind the kitchen cabinets. This is when you need to bring in some experts to try and find out what is happening in that structure, and then you can proceed right. with some uh, intelligence rather than just speculating what's going right. on.
0: Ken, now that you mentioned that, and you and I both know you're up in the panhandle of Florida where they, you know, in the last last several months, you had a, a devastating storm hurricane, Michael, that hit you folks up there. What are you seeing? What are companies not doing a very good job with in helping these folks? And what do they need to do a better job of doing to properly investigate, document damage, and give these owners the right information and guidance in order to get them back to a sound condition?
1: Right. Uh, This is a really good question, and it's an important one. Uh, The fact of the matter is that in Hurricane Michael, and that is true with most hurricane or weather-related events, especially in Florida, you're going to have a variety of different contractors show up in town, each claiming to be the best in the industry and trying to secure prospect projects so that they can, you know, have a job of after one of these events. Now, it attracts these weather events attract the full scope of quality of contractors. I have seen some of the finest work in my entire career uh, as a result of some of the repairs performed in Hurricane Michael. I mean, seriously, just case studies of perfection really proud to be associated with those kinds of jobs and on the other hand i've also seen some of these jobs that are so embarrassingly substandard that you wonder how they are going to get any revenue whatsoever out of what they do they have no business being in the industry and i think that that's true of all industries on the planet is you're going to have some good guys and some bad guys so Mm -hmm. what can the homeowner do to try and find out Uh, what they need in the event that they have an insurance claim? The answer is, look at who is involved. So for instance, if the insurance company says, oh, you need to use my preferred vendor. Well, there is a reason why they are so-called preferred. And so the question is, whose interests are they serving? Are they gonna serve the property owners or their client, which is the insurance carrier? And you know, this kind of is a a good segue into the second thing that a a homeowner can do, uh, aside from the the first step of calling the, the agent and making sure that they are covered for a particular peril, the next thing they can do is they file a claim, find out if the insurance carrier is in a contractual agreement with the entity, this restorer, that they want to bring into the house. If they are a preferred vendor, there's a very good chance that there is a written agreement in place on the terms of that relationship, that they will or will mm. not do certain things or they will limit prices or limit. So just, you know, there's some terms that Stuff are in there. World. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so if, if it's completely appropriate for the policyholder to inquire from the claims representative, if their preferred contractor is, has an agreement with the insurance carrier for this arrangement, and then ask for a copy of that agreement. I mean, if you're, you're about to enter into a contractual relationship with this contractor, he's going to ask you to sign a form. But if he's already right. got a contract in place with another materially interested party, being the insurance company, that may be mm-hmm. a conflict that you would be concerned about. So research that. And if you're not comfortable with it, explore your options to find a contractor that you are more comfortable
0: with. Right. And I think that's becoming more prevalent in the industry today. There's there's a lot of language and policies out there called a right to repair. And, you know, again, I think you bring a valid point to the table, which is, you know, are they doing it right? Are they doing it in the interests of the property owner? And, you know, what can they do if they don't do it right? You know, the 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 insurance company contractor comes in, does the job or perceived to do the job. And then a year later, the homeowner is now still having problems. I mean, that's going to be a difficult road to go down to go back to these people and get them taken care of. So one thing you mentioned earlier was, you know, what are they They not doing right? Are they, you know, are they preparing the property? Are they doing a proper investigation? Are they taking baseboards off the walls? Are they, you know, What needs to be done to do a proper evaluation that maybe you're seeing is not being done? Okay, so that's another
1: broad question and I could spend hours talking just about what I've seen happen and what should happen. Right. But I think what the consumer, the policyholder needs to know is that this isn't just a general cleanup service on aisle three. This is a, a skilled trade that requires a lot of training. Uh, years of education, lots of experience to try, and then a, an understanding of the built environment. Mm. A house isn't just a piece of gypsum wallboard or some two by fours. Mm-hmm. It's a system. You have a system right. in place where the HVAC system is the lungs of the building that can disperse a problem from one room to another room very readily. And so the mm-hmm. whole uh, understanding of this the structure and how it works and what needs to be addressed is an important understanding that you know you don't get just by going to a store and you know buying a bottle of right. disinfectant and trying to wipe things down. So here's what I want your radio listeners to know is that there is a standard of care that has been around for decades now. It's called the the S500, so standard 500, and the most current year is 2015 and it continuously gets updated so we have just kind of gone through a recent update. And it defines what is and is not uh, expected to perform a structural drying project in a fashion that meets the standard of care. And so there's hmm. a lot of contractors out there that know about the standard and they claim that it's yes. in accord with the standard of care. But you should mm-hmm. see how wrong they have it. They say it's in the standard, but it's not in there. And so there's a, a lot of that going on. So let me give you but, a very brief example. Yeah, go of, ahead. If you don't mind. Here's one thing that I sure. saw in Hurricane Michael all over the place, and it made my head explode. You'd be driving down the road, and you see one of these little realtor signs, you know, small little signs on the side of the road saying, "Oh, you got a, a, if you have a problem in your house, you know, call us." Whatever. The one that I saw everywhere in Hurricane Michael that was so um, distressing to me was we fog for mold. We fog. So they're introducing a mist of a disinfectant to fill the house with a gas of disinfectant, claiming that this will resolve their mold issue that they have in their house. Make no mistake that there's all kinds of issues associated with this. The most egregious Hmm. part of this is that if you have a registered disinfectant, an EPA registered disinfectant, and you deviate from the product labeling, it is a violation of federal law. And these wow. products don't say that you can fog it. You're introducing that into a space that people will breathe, and it's engineered to right. kill stuff. Why would you subject hmm. your homeowner to that potential issue? So this was happening all over, and they were charging exorbitant rates. I, I, I will say this on this That's show. Terrible. The product typically costs $20 a gallon, just so you know. But they put it through a, a machine that makes a wet mist, And Mm -hmm. so they're using very minimal product and then they're charging thousands of dollars for the service. They've got Hmm. pennies invested in it. And I feel so bad for these poor uh, policyholders because they are paying a premium price for something that is pure snake oil. It doesn't work. And that
0: can hurt them, actually. Yes, absolutely it can. So, so beware
1: so, of the fraudulent um, yeah, charlatans that come into stuff these, out there. They're, they're all over the place.
0: Mm-hmm. So now that you mention that, I've got moisture in my home or my building. In my mind, I mean, a lot of these homeowners are thinking, let me just turn the AC down, cooler, let me put some fans on, let me open a window or two. Is it a technology? Is it a science? Or is it just machinery? Do I just need three machines and the fans? Is it just a a formula or a calculation? Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, again, I could spend days on that subject too. The bottom line is this. Insurance carriers believe, or insurance claims rep, typically try to control their costs by limiting how much equipment is placed on a job site, alleging that As long as you have two or three air movers or whatever the number is and you know one dehumidifier that the structure will dry in an arbitrary time frame usually they claim that it will be dry in three days Uh, for the record there is no such reference to any time frame like that in the industry standard furthermore the subject of air air mover counts and dehumidifier counts there isn't a single reference And there never has been any reference in the industry standards that state that if you install a certain quantity of air movers or dehumidifiers, it will result in a dry structure. It doesn't say that. It especially doesn't say it'll happen in three days. So the question is, what are these equipment formulas that are spoken of in the standards supposed to do? Here's what it does. Whenever you have wet surfaces in a building and you turn on air movers, you're going to increase the rate of evaporation. Yeah, it's going to get real humid in there. So there's going to be a spike in humidity at the start of every drying job. So how do you manage that humidity that you are generating? And that is when the standard describes this formula that in order to control and manage the anticipated spike in humidity the moment you turn on the air movers, you would install mm-hmm. a minimum of so many dehumidifiers. That's all it's saying. Now, it doesn't promise a dry building. It just says this right. is a technique that you can use to manage mm-hmm. that anticipated spike in humidity, and that's it. And so it's a really twisted understanding when you see any reviewer of a, an insurance claim when they say, oh, you had too much equipment or not enough equipment, Mm -hmm. and that needs to be corrected forcefully, because when they imply that these equipment formulas result in a dry building, they are
0: dictating
1: that there be a substandard approach to the effort Hmm. to restore the building.
0: So then, in my opinion, it sounds like it takes quite a lot of skill to know exactly what you need to do, not just simply the machinery and the equipment. It sounds like it's a, a science to me. I mean, there's what interpretation that's required according to the type of structure. The, the, mm-hmm. the area of the country, you wouldn't use the same process in Florida as you would in, in Canada or Arizona, and you can't just have anybody off the street doing this. You need a specialist that's been trained and,
1: and understands the process. Absolutely. So that's another really good question, and it's an important one, is that it's not the tools that the contractor would bring into the house that results in the dried structure. It's the technician's skill with their tools that will result in the, in the desired results. So here's the illustration I do like to use. A car mechanic can spend tens of thousands of dollars uh, purchasing the best ratchets and wrenches that money can buy. It's not uncommon to spend over $50,000 in one of these red toolboxes that you might have Uh, for repairing your car. So imagine you had that much money and you went out and you bought this amazing toolbox and put it in your garage. And then you bring your car into the garage to park it for the night. And you park it two feet from the very front of this $50,000 red toolbox. And then you go inside and you go to sleep for the night. When you come out in the morning, is your car sick? Well, of course it isn't. It would be absurd to think that the tools would uh, produce the repaired car. Rather, it's the mechanic and his skill with those tools that will produce the, um, the repaired car. And the same is true with all of these dehumidifiers and air movers that restoration contractors frequently bring into the home. It's not the air movers or the dehumidifiers that will result in the dried building. They are tools that are commonly used in that process. But it's not the tool itself and so there are many ways in which you can configure a a responsible use of this equipment and produce a, a nice healthy structure but it does require an understanding on the part of the technician who is using those tools so you mentioned other places in the country canada phoenix arizona nevada and comparing that to the world of florida This is a huge deal because, I mean, we all know how humid and hot it is in Florida, and then you have these chilled indoor environments where, you know, the laws of physics dictate that high humidity and high temperatures are going to seek areas that are cooler and drier. This is just uh, physics at work. And so when we have some claims reps, representatives who say, oh, that should have been dried in three days, we must remind them that. Not only are we in a hot, humid environment, we're on the Everglades. This is wet soil, wet air, and hot air, mm-hmm. and solar—you know—that's beating on the building, driving the thermal energy and you know the humidity into places that it might not get into if you were in a uh, an opposite right. environment. So there's much right. to know, and it's not a simple uh, answer of just follow this formula and every building will dry.
0: And you know, I'm fan of. No pun intended. When I walk into a building and I see something, obviously I'm like, okay, I see something. Sometimes when I don't see something yet something doesn't feel right, I'm maybe even more concerned when not, because a lot of people are under the impression, oh, if I don't see something, we're good. But you know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, sometimes <laughs> what you don't see that can, that can cause more damage than what you do actually see.
1: Well, it's just quite humorous to me that you would bring up that subject after this very fascinating discussion I just had in Boston yesterday. And there was an individual who uh, was at this event and she came to me with some mold testing results. So these are results that uh, some consultant will come in there with a device that will uh, pull a sample from the air, and then they send it to a laboratory, and they look at this little glass slide with a thin film of grease on it, and they want to see you know what kind of particulate stuck to the grease, and um, From that they can say, "Oh, there is this species of mold and this hair fragment and that dust fragment and whatever." And then from there you can try and figure out if there's an issue in the built environment or if there's not. Well, one of these tests, like, there was four samples that were collected. One of the samples was perfectly clean. I mean, perfectly clean. There was no dust, no debris, no mold spores, nothing in the air. Well, that's a th- you know a, a test where there's you know no apparent problem. But the fact is that was a huge red flag because to have an air sample with nothing in it, there's something going on in there. That is so such a rare, rare occurrence that. You would have a perfectly dust-free environment in somebody's home after walking around on the carpet and the HVAC system is running and on and on you go. So What was going on there? So There's a, there's a sample with nothing. Here's what the conclusion was after uh, conversing with my expert colleagues. He said after 40 years of him doing samples, he's seen maybe 15 or 16 of those samples where nothing came back. And He says, this is usually a clue that the contractor bent the rules or did something in that chamber mm-hmm. to produce that ultra pure environment and hid or caused the the mold problem to be a hidden issue mm-hmm. that can reemerge down the road so what does he suspect he suspects that the contractor went in there and fogged the area with a sealant this is different from mm-hmm. trying to fog it to kill mold what he did is he, he sprayed a sticky substance over all the surface in the building, and that way things would just stick to it, and that way there would be nothing in the air when they pulled wow. the air sample. The problem is that this encapsulant or sealant or whatever it was that they sprayed, it doesn't stay sticky forever, and it will eventually release that contaminant. And if it has toxins, you could still have the toxins that uh, reaction right. to those toxins. And all mold, mm-hmm. regardless of species, I know that's a sweeping statement, but it's true of all mold. All mold is allergenic, which means that you can have an allergic reaction to those exposures. So what that contractor did is they cheated to get the good results of hmm. the, the, the contaminant issue later down the road. And that's the kind of things that we look for.
0: Wow. Well, that doesn't sound like that's really... A- working well for the homeowner or whoever got those results but you know i mean i wouldn't put anything past anyone in the industry today it's you know you need to seek out the right folks and and the right experts to hire and that sounds like that's definitely a case of of that happening with that said i know i've seen over the past couple two three years the intensity of the storms uh, more coastal flooding and probably the likelihood that things are not going to get better as far as our exposure to these events and moisture coming into our properties, especially along the coast, what advancements have you seen recently in the industry compared to the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years that you've been doing this that, you know, can, that we can feel encouraged that, you know, you guys on your side are, you know, making these advancements and, and improving the technologies out there. What can you give us that'll make us feel better and, and you know, easier to sleep at night knowing that you know, things are getting better on that end while the climate, obviously, and, and the intensity of storms you know, continues to go in the other direction. Right.
1: So in order to answer that, I think it's important that everybody understands that there is a, an inherent uh, conflict of interest that exists on an insurance claim. Insurance companies are publicly traded firms. Therefore, they have a fiduciary responsibility to produce profit for their shareholders and every dollar that is spent on an insurance claim is one less dollar for their shareholders. So there must be an effort made to limit these expenses in order to make the, uh, the stock as profitable as possible for the shareholders. So we understand that. We accept that it. it's just the nature of that business with right. that in mind. We now understand why there is such a vigorous attempt to try and limit the scope of work and costs associated with repairing a structure. I get it, but now that I understand it, what can we do to bring fairness to an insurance claim for only the repairs that are needed, justified, usual, and customary? That's the challenge. The insurance company is trying to keep the cost down, Contractors are inspired to in, to make as much profit as possible. Therefore, you want yeah. to have, uh, you know, there's, there's the conflict. So how do you control that? And, you know, there's been bullying techniques that have been attempted by certain entities who are trying to sell the service of, we will beat up the contractor's invoice and save you 30%. In fact, they've published that. So a few of these entities have gone out there and said, we will save the, insurer, the insurance carrier at least 30 percent by beating up the contractor's invoices whether it's justified or not now that's a very adversarial approach to this business transaction so the the latest trends are this as, that i'm seeing and i'm encouraged by it is a greater and more consistent uh, practice of bringing qualified experts figure out what is actually needed to in that uh, structure and is in accord with the standard of care, not inflated, not an insurance claim shortfall, just what's necessary. And so I'm finding more and more policyholders with an insurance claim are calling either an attorney or a public adjuster for representation. This is, at least in the state of Florida, has become uh, almost uh, a necessary practice because there is such an adversarial experience when trying to settle an insurance claim in Florida. And the other thing i 'm extremely busy being called in when there are uh, questions of the sort of you know what what needs to happen on this job is this really here 's a case in point. Hurricane Michael was in excess of one hundred and seventy miles an hour. You think that those winds are going to pick up stuff off the road and off the ground and mix it with the rain and as it comes into the building that that 's probably a contaminated water source well, of course it is. Usually, usually it is. But the insurance cares understandably argue, come on, it's rainwater. It's just rainwater. It's distilled water. Just dry it out and be done with it. No biggie. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, is the policyholder having a house returned to them that is free of the contaminants that were introduced from the covered peril, the, the, the rainstorm, the hurricane? Is it free of that? And this is where it takes testing to determine if, in fact, the structure is repaired correctly. This is how I'm involved uh, in, in my business is that I'm helping determine those answers. And, you know, I am encouraged to see that more and more policyholders are understanding the necessity to bring in some qualified, non-conflicted experts that can speak right. for the needs of the structure rather than the wants of the insurance carrier, desire of the in- uh, contractor to make profit so got it I'm encouraged
0: so you are encouraged well that's that's a good thing so for those folks that are listening can how would they reach you what's the best way if they have a question or or well, they wanted to talk to you about their property how what's the best way to reach out to you what would you recommend
1: well I would welcome all uh, inquiries even from the insurance carriers who want to talk about this uh, and some of the things that I've said uh, homeowners, contractors, I'm uh, happy to speak to any of them. They can certainly uh, reach me on my email, Ken at DryStandard.org. Or my phone, um, go ahead and give me a phone call or text message, I'm fine with that too. Area code 817-542-1189.
0: Great, thanks, I appreciate that. I- I'm, I'm pretty uh, confident that all of our listeners uh, got a lot of benefit out of our podcast today. I want to thank, thank you, Ken, for joining us and sharing your, your history and your experience with the, our listeners. And just wanted to say thank you for, for coming on the show. I think it was very beneficial and I certainly enjoyed it. For those of you that, um, that were listening, thank you for joining us on, on today's podcast on Everything Building Envelope. Uh, please check in on us for you know future podcasts. We aim to bring you, you know, the most the latest information and technology out in the industry today regarding the building envelope. And I encourage all of you to follow us on uh, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Once again, thanks so much, Derek Sieg with GCI Consultants, with Ken Larson. Thanks so much for listening today. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. For more information on the Everything Building Envelope, previous episodes, show notes, bonus video content, and much more, check out our website, everythingbuildingenvelope.com.